Today I'm here with Dipti Tate and Dipti came, actually she came onto my radar a few years ago because a couple of friends mentioned her because she's quite a famous hypnotherapist in our neck of the woods and recently I interviewed Ben Edmonds from my podcast who quit his job at Dyson. If you haven't listened to it, it's a really great interview so please go back and listen to that one too. He mentioned Dipti also so you know when somebody keeps popping up on your radar and you get really intrigued so I thought I'm just going to reach out people are talking about her in such a wonderful way I've got to get to know this person so I reached out to Dipti and she does indeed seem to be as wonderful as people make her out to be and then as we got chatting it turns out that she has an amazing career change story of her own so I couldn't not interview thank you so much Dipti for being here today I'm really excited to delve into your career change and talk about what you're doing now Oh, that was such a lovely intro. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And yes, I'm, yeah, I'm excited to delve in to this as well, because I've not really talked about it very much. We'll get out the skeletons from that closet (laughs) of yours. So can you tell us what you were doing before your big career change? What I was doing was, so I was in my early 20s when I started my career, like most of us probably, and I thought that was going to be my career forever, my career for life, because I just thought that was it, you know, I got to this place and this place had been my pinnacle of success so I'd been trying really hard all my life to get to this particular company and I got there and I was like that's it I'm 23 and I've arrived and this is where (laughs) I'm going to stay for the rest of my life yeah and then it all changed (laughs) yes definitely not where I am now I'd been working towards this place and I wanted to get a career in TV So ever since I was probably five years old, I knew I wanted to work in television. That was it. I was just made to work on TV. That was my home. That was where I wanted to be. I always put myself in front of the video camera when it was out, you know, because in those days it was a very rare thing to see a camera. Yeah. Um, I trained in acting and theatre and I went to TV school and I did an English and media studies degree. So, you know, all my life led up to working at this place finally got in and that was the BBC so when I got to the BBC in London um in Wood Lane Television Centre I remember walking in to that incredibly like wow reception you know all glass and glossy with these elevators and you know like security guards and like amazing reception desk and like funky sofas and stuff and I'm just like oh my god I go here I work here and you know every day I used to walk in be like I go here I work here with my badge and I was just so proud and yeah that didn't last for very long (laughs) (laughs) but you set yourself a goal and then presumably you did all the work to get there And then you reached it, which is actually something to be celebrated. And good for you, it sounds like you were celebrating it at the time. I really was. I loved it so much. Yeah, yeah. What were you doing at the BBC? 
So I worked in post-production and graphic design and that was quite a big department then in those days. I call it the arse end of TV, which is basically when production have made the programme and then it comes to us and we then edit the programme and get it on air. Right. So So was the intention to be in front of the camera at some point? Yes, it was always the intention. Okay. (laughs) And I tried my hardest to get in front of all the producers, all the execs, all the program makers. You know, those days we didn't have phones. We didn't, well, we did have just about have phones, but they were just to make phone calls with. They didn't have cameras and videos on them or anything. So I used to make showreel after showreel after showreel. I even jumped out of a plane to do a showreel for Blue Peter and talk all the way down as you're free calling. And then when it got to editing it, you realise no one can hear a a word (gasps) because you're... You're falling out of the sky, (laughs) funnily enough, and there's quite a lot of air resistance. So (laughs) that didn't work so well, but I did submit it to Blue Peter and I got shortlisted. It was between me and somebody else who actually got the job and it was that close. Oh, wasn't meant to be. Was not, really not meant to be. So yeah, I didn't end up on screen then. I did a few bits here and there, but yeah, mainly it was behind the scenes. Why do you think that you never made it in front of the screen? I have no idea. I'm still, I'm still grieving. Anyone watching this, I'm still really up for it, by the way. (laughs) Well, you have made some TV appearances because I've seen them. So it's sort of coming to fruition, that that (laughs) part of your dream, isn't it? But just in a different way. I realised that I needed something to back my screen appearances up. I needed substance. I couldn't just be this kind of young wannabe going, give me a job in front of a screen and I'll just talk and present because clearly that wasn't going to happen. It didn't happen. I realised very, very late after why I had to leave it, penny started to drop, why it didn't happen for me and why it might be happening for me 25 years later. Mm. Oh, I, I definitely want to get into that. So sh- should we first of all talk about why you ended up leaving the BBC? So the BBC is, I mean, as it stands for British Broadcasting Corporation, it's the biggest corporation in Britain in the media. And it certainly was then because back then, you know, we didn't really have cable it was coming sky was coming in and cable was coming in but it wasn't like it is now there was obviously no internet real internet like it is now no netflix none of that so it was actually a huge institution i mean it still is quite a huge institution but obviously back then it was huge media wise and because it was a corporation it still had corporation undertones where you are a number you know, you're not really individual, you are just a cog in a machine, as you are with most corporations. You're not shining bright like a diamond, you know, you can easily be replaced. There's always someone behind you waiting to take your role at your feet, you know, literally sniping and biting. Mm. Also, it's a very drag and drop industry, I call it, you know, they can drag you along and then they can drop you at, at a minute's notice. 
So there was a lot of that going on. And when you're in your 20s, you don't really mind. You're okay. You're a little bit more flexible. You know, you're kind of a bit more, um, you don't really mind being taken advantage of or, you know, being exploited slightly. It's okay. But then when you kind of get a little bit older, you start to see those cracks and yeah. then you're a bit like, hang on a minute, you know, and you're a little bit more careful, you know, with, with how you want to spend your energy and time. So I couldn't, I realized I couldn't go up in the BBC. I had to kind of keep going sideways, which was what was happening. And I was really ambitious. You know, I really wanted to be a high flyer. I was a huge high achiever. So I realized I couldn't go that way. And I kept going that way. So what I decided to do was take the kind of risky road and quit and leave. So and did you have a plan or did you literally just wake up one day and go, no, I've had enough of this? I think that waking up one day, I've had enough of this was coming after a few waking up one days of having right. enough of it. So it was probably inevitable, but I certainly didn't wake up and go, I'm quitting. I kind of sort of knew that what I could do was use the name of the BBC mm -hmm. to climb up the career ladder in a different place in the media still. So I wanted very much to take on a management role and I wasn't going to be getting that in the BBC. So I stopped trying. And then what I ended up doing is getting in touch with one of the BBC's competitors and basically told them that I was at the BBC and I knew a lot of behind the scenes and clearly they snapped me up. And I got a huge pay increase, wow. a massive career. You know, it wasn't even a step. It was more like I've just gone and elevated on top of that ladder. You know, it was a bit stupid in from my point of view and quite arrogant. I'm thinking now when I'm looking back because I hadn't got a clue of how to do this job. <laughs> I just but you obviously it. managed to convince them that you could do it. I did. Yeah. But the funny thing is I got there and I started and I did it. I really did. I didn't pull the wool over anyone's eyes in the end. I thought I was when I sort of got the job. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is going to go well. Um, but actually, no, I stepped up. I, I actually really did well. I was but only there. They saw something in you that you didn't even know. You I did. know. I mean, I think, no, I think I don't know, actually. It'd be interesting to ask the guy mm -hmm. uh, employed me what actually he saw. Was it pound signs? <laughs> because he knew that I could easily do the sort of client side of things because I'd already kind of worked with the clients in the BBC in-house because some of the clients had already moved over to that company without us knowing at the BBC. But as I did the interview, that's when I found out as well. And then I was like... Ah, oh, so this is what I've been doing. These are my clients and they happen to be the same clients. And so I think he saw the potential in that yeah. more than in me. So I was more the facilitator of what I could do for his business. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you achieved what you were meant to do. So how long did you stay there? Six months. Uh, yeah, because something else came into my life, a massive curveball something that I really was not expecting. I must have been 27 or 28 when this new thing happened. 
and uh, yeah, found out I was pregnant. Ah. And I wasn't planning for a baby at all. I don't really know how it happened. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was actually a huge curveball, but the biggest blessing in my life, not because of the usual things that people would say about, oh my God, my baby. It was obviously that as well, but I needed something that big and that dramatic to happen to punctuate my life because otherwise I would have probably kept going on that media road and fallen off the cliff. That's how I feel now about it. What does falling off the cliff mean? I think you become you become slightly institutionalised in a sort of company or in an industry like the media. It can eat you up and swallow you up whole and there are very few people who make it really big but everybody else is still a cog trying to be something else if that makes sense yeah complete sense yeah and there's always somebody bigger faster better so it's it's a very harsh industry and i think if i didn't have christian my first son if that didn't happen to me yeah well i don't know there's no split a b testing is there you can't kind of tell can you can't go well let's look at what life would have been like and let's look at that picture because you don't know do you no but i don't think it would have worked out so well so christian was my savior so you fall pregnant and what's your first thought with regards to your career well i was more of a and i've said this to christian so he won't mind me saying it i was more of a career person than a mother in my head i didn't think motherhood was going to be my bag at all I was just so focused on my career so ambitious so when I found out I was pregnant it was literally like someone had told me I'd grown two heads you know it was that alien you know to to my way of being and thinking and behaving mm-hmm. and so I'm like I have to swap my high heels for a high chair are you kidding me you know and <laughs> Yeah, it was a big culture change and culture shock and grieving process, which sounds a bit strange because no one's died, but grief came at me like a huge ton of bricks smacked me around the face a few times and I had to cope with that change of identity, but I did. And with that came along a sense of ownership, duty, obligation and love. Mm-hmm. towards this baby that hadn't you know appeared yet and I was like okay I'm gonna make this the best pregnancy I can make this I'm gonna make my body the best body I've ever had I'm gonna be healthy I'm gonna nurture this baby I'm gonna nest I'm gonna get out of the media because it's stressful and it's a 24-hour industry and I can't do two 24-hour industries at the same time so I've got to choose one over the other so that was so that was really obvious to you from the beginning that it was one or the other there wasn't yeah. ever going to be they can coexist no but that was that was that part of the brain was going mm-hmm. i've got to choose this and then yeah. the other part of the brain was i don't want to choose this and so these two parts of my mind were constantly in battle and totally opposing and resisting and fighting each other for a long time yeah, I can imagine. That must have been really 
tough. And it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it does seem to be something that only, I don't like to gender stereotype at all, but it is something that does seem to be quite unique to women that men... And it is a gender stereotype. It's ex- not a stereotype. Yeah. It's a reality. It's true. Yeah. Men can't have babies. Yeah, but that they is also very, very rarely have to choose between a career and being a parent it does happen and obviously there are men that decide you know when their partner's pregnant that they're going to take a break and and be the home dad of course but obviously it's a much more female thing isn't it that we as soon as we're pregnant we do question what's going to happen to our career and it is a big defining moment isn't it for so many people and that is huge yeah when you are faced with that choice which men don't have to face and i'm not even apologizing for that because they don't they don't have to face that choice because they don't have to give birth to a baby and they don't have to carry a baby they might carry the baby in their mind (laughs) it's not the same as carrying (laughs) physically a baby because you're carrying it with your full body mind and soul and spirit and everything and it takes over your existence like nothing else can and so that was a huge polarized point of my life in my career what do I do now this has now happened to me that's how I felt it happened to me I didn't feel like I was a co-creator in it but obviously I was I know that now but at that time I was this has happened to me now I have got to make this choice but there was almost like something else choosing as well and I don't know I'm not I mean I'm quite spiritual in my outlook but it did feel that this was not an option to not do this you know it was something I've got to do and maybe later down the line I will work out why so then I decided yeah I just handed in my notice as soon as I found out I was pregnant because I wanted move yeah I want to um I had to give three months notice. Mm -hmm. So, and funny thing is I found out I was pregnant when I was already three months pregnant. Oh, so I didn't have long to go. I didn't have long to go. So I stayed there till I was six months pregnant, showing by then. And uh, that was interesting because uh, I heard comments such as, wow, you used to look so funky and now you really don't. Wow. People Being could said, say that at that time. <laughs> people, and people were saying it to your face. Yeah, it was kind of joking. Okay. But there's, there wasn't, you know what I mean? It wasn't, it, it was a thing. Yeah. You don't fit in in that industry. It's just not something you can do successfully, in my opinion. I mean, I'm sure lots and lots and lots of people have made it work. Oh. I'm sure they have. And fair play to them is all I can say. But there was just this undercurrent of, you loser, you're a mum, you know? Wow. That's a a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? Especially if your whole life you've sort of geared yourself up for this role, to then hear things like that must have been quite heartbreaking at the time. Yeah, it was was soul-destroying. And I have to actually admit that before I became a mum, I had the same opinion. So I'm actually 
standing up there and saying that too. I remember sitting next to a lady who, um, in the BBC, who had a couple of children and she'd come into work early because she dropped them at the creche first. And I just remember thinking, poor her, you know, wow. poor her. And then I turned into the poor her. Because <laughs> then when Christian was six months old, found out I was pregnant again <gasps> with Jacob. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. The universe definitely wanted you to be a mum. <laughs> definitely did. Thank God. Thank God, universe. Because those two boys are like just, you know, amazing. You know, they're not boys anymore. They're adults. They're fully fledged out in the world now which is amazing were you thinking anything career related during those first few years of your boy's life or not and then i was a bit like there my career is now down the toilet so living and breathing being a full-time mother just took my world over <laughs> as you can imagine my ex-husband then was my husband at that time he used to work night shifts and he still used to work in the media oh, wow. so i used to feel very begrudgingly um resentful i think about that probably didn't realize how resentful i was about that because he still was living this glamorous life which i thought was glamorous it wasn't because he was doing night shifts and they were long shifts and it was hard work, you know, but in my head it was, that's not me, that's not what I'm doing anymore. And, yeah. you know, I've got to do this, I've got to change nappies and I've got to make baby food. And I took motherhood by the horns and I did everything to the point where I was just insane. <laughs> in what um, way? You know, I wouldn't just buy jars of baby food, I would buy, loads of vegetables and spend ages blending them and jarring them and labeling them and freezing them and, you know doing all of that stuff and this is way before instagram you know <laughs> i was like the before original we were told how to mother properly <laughs> so it sounds like you had this like i don't even want to be a mum to then going to the complete other extreme I know. Of, i'm going to be the absolute best mum I know, I was completely black and white, like completely there and there at the same time, which is weird, isn't it? It really was weird. When I look back now, I'm like, what, what, what was happening to me? Because on one end, I was like, I don't want to be here. On the other end, I love it here. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think motherhood, motherhood does that to you. It's sort of, <laughs> it's sort of choose up what, who you used to be and then spits you <laughs> out and then God knows where you're going to land. So how long was it before you could start thinking about a career again at that point? So then I sort of did the two boys, you know, one after the other. It felt like a three-year pregnancy and then it felt like a three-year weaning period. It felt like a three-year potty training. <laughs> it just kind of kept going and kept going. So then when they were seven and eight, we decided to up sticks from London and move to the Cotswolds because <laughs> my ex-husband at the time then got a job in, in Sirencester. Okay. And I was like, where the hell is Sirencester? <laughs> Let's just get the map out. <laughs> I was like, I've never, ever heard of the Cotswolds. For me, uh, I'm a Londoner. So for me, the countryside was Reading. Right. 
you know that was like oh as rural as it gets rural yeah (laughs) and And now you know that siren sister is the center of the universe it clearly is the center of the cotswolds so then i'm like where the hell is siren sister first i thought he said colchester so i'm like oh right okay we're moving to east london or you know essex that'll do that's fine but then siren sister i have no idea where that is Anyway, so we came to Sirencester and I was just like, okay, <laughs> countryside. And the first thing I realized when I got here, when we started looking for houses was like, it's so white, as in, I, could, I just couldn't see anyone else that was brown. There was no other brown people. And that's kind of what I said. I was like, um, I'm going to be the only Indian in the village. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. And I was a bit like, oh, okay, this will be interesting. So anyway, it looked idyllic on paper and it was really lovely until my marriage broke down. (laughs) Then it it didn't go so well. So that was another huge story. Um, And it always comes back to grief. Grief is, it seems to be the common denominator in my life. Uh, When I was at the BBC, I lost my dad. That was my first grieving point and then I left the BBC and then found out I was pregnant and then there was another grieving point and then I moved from London my home to the middle of nowhere that was another grieving point and grief just seemed to be the theme that follows me around everywhere I'd lost my identity from being a TV person to a mother grief again then I realized that grief isn't just about death it actually is about life and when we make these massive changes whether they are intentional or circumstantial there's always going to be grief involved and that's a big thing to recognize and to deal with and I realized I needed to do something with that I turned grief into my career So you recognised, did you recognise at the time that you felt like grief was sort of the common thread throughout your life? Or do you realise that now in retrospect? A bit of both, I suppose. I realised that I was grieving London when I felt the same emotions and overwhelm like I felt when my dad had died. And I thought, this is weird. I'm feeling those same emotions when I experienced a really close death to moving environment and no one's died. London hasn't died. It's still there. But something in me had died. My identity of being a Londoner had died. My um, ideas of what my future would look like had died. My hopes and dreams had died. Some of my belief systems had died of who I was now versus who I didn't want to be in that time of poor her. And so I realized that this grief thing was a big thing happening to me again. And how can I make this thing that's happening to me something bigger than me? Because it already is bigger than me. So then I started writing a book because for me, writing was my catharsis. It was my 
way of dealing and coping and processing so the book didn't mean to be a book it was the first one good grief it just was my diary really and it ended up being a book and then it did really well and then on the back of good grief i got commissioned to write my second book planet grief so grief seemed to be my new journey my new oh. career my new way of life my new way of earning money yeah. and then i trained as a psychotherapist and a hypnotherapist and uh, even though my speciality i guess is grief I don't just deal with grief now. I'm very much general psychotherapy and hypnotherapy, but also do specialise in in grief. And it would be remiss of me not to mention that your books, for anybody who's watching it on YouTube, obviously if you're not watching the video, you won't see it, but over Dipti's shoulder, you will see both her books. And they're both available to buy, aren't they? Are they both available on Amazon? Yes, and in all good bookshops. There so. you go. So Good Grief <laughs> and Planet Grief. So if anybody is interested in reading either of Dipti's books, they're right there. Well, Good Do Grief is all about death, really. It was about losing people. And then Planet Grief came about because I realised that everybody on the planet is grieving and there doesn't have to be a death involved because it's about loss in life. Yeah. So that's that's the sort of difference between the two yeah i don't know if anybody gets through life without experiencing some grief of some kind so i'm sure there's something in there for everybody just to go back to your first book you said you you started it out not really meaning for it to be a book at what point did that transition happen from oh this is just a diary to actually this is a book yeah i was at an NLP conference and that, for those of you who don't know what NLP is it stands for Neuro Linguistic Programming and it, this was all part of my psychotherapy training. I did a lot of um, CPD so continuing professional development and stuff and I was at this NLP conference and uh, we had to do some kind of task one day and we were given a task to I can't even remember what the task was, but we had to buddy up with the person next to us and it was somebody we didn't know. And so I buddied up with the lady next to me and for some reason I was telling her about my diary, my grief diaries. And actually there were not, it wasn't just one diary, it was seven diaries oh, because yeah. I would write in each emotional diary when I felt that particular emotion. So there'd be one for sadness, one for anxiety, one for loneliness, one for guilt, one for anger, um, fear, I think was the other one. And I'd write in each diary when I was feeling that emotion. And that was all the part of the full spectrum of grief, basically. And I was saying to this lady, oh, I'm what I'm going to do this weekend, it might have been something to do with how can you move on from something. And I said, ah, oh, what I'm going to do this weekend is I'm going to burn the seven diaries. And she was like, what seven diaries? And I then explained about these seven diaries. And she said, what do you mean you're going to burn them? And I said, yeah, I'm going to do a ceremonial thing, a ritual. I'm going to burn them because it means that I can just get on with my life now and move on from all of that. She was like, no, don't burn them. And then it turned out she was a book writing coach. <laughs> Unreal. And then she's like, don't burn them. Give them to me. And I'm like, no. <laughs> she's like, like my me. most intimate thoughts. Yeah. It was like, she might as well have said, take all your clothes off and get on that stage and <laughs> sing a song. 
And I'm like, no way. And then it took ages for me to agree. But in the end, I gave them to her. We worked on them and it turned into good grief. Wow. So had writing been part of your journey in the past? Or was this like something that you didn't even know you were capable of? I did an English degree. So writing and reading and analysing, you know, kind of words has always been my forte, what I'm good at. So I've always been a creative writer. Um, So that was my creative outlet, really. Writing was my way of healing, of sorting, of compartmentalising, of bonding. Yeah, so writing was and has been and is my way of expression or thing so she obviously so she read your diaries and saw something in them clearly even though i don't know how because there was no sense logic intellect was nothing really it was just stream of emotional consciousness those diaries were not really meant for anyone else to look at but god knows how yeah she helped me unpick it all and turned it into good grief and I mean unbelievable it's it's that you know we were talking earlier about like that sliding door moment and you know your a b testing yeah it's incredible isn't it how I suppose meeting this lady on this course just opened a door that I guess wouldn't have opened potentially otherwise no exactly exactly they would have been burned wouldn't they in that massive ritual ceremony I was gonna (laughs) unbelievable yeah so now we have a book and we have a second book and you've been training and now can for anybody who doesn't understand what hypnotherapy is because I think people still have a bit of a they hear a hypnosis and they think about you know people being turned into chickens on stage Mm -hmm. that sort of thing so can you talk to us very briefly about what hypnotherapy actually is what it involves Yeah, so hypnosis and hypnotherapy is the same thing, but it's just hypnosis, stage hypnosis is different to therapy hypnosis. So even though we're still both using hypnosis, one of them is entertainment on a stage and the other one is using it for therapeutic purposes. So no one comes into my practice asking to be turned into a chicken or asking for their hand to be stuck to their head (laughs) I don't know why but they just don't seem to think that's a good idea for some reason or it's not lasting value for them (laughs) so you kind of that's the difference really one is used for entertainment purposes only and the other one is used for therapeutic purposes only so obviously I'm not a stage hypnotist I'm a hypnotherapist so we still use the same type of hypnosis but for the therapeutic advancement. And the interesting thing is with stage hypnosis, they're using the same sort of techniques, but on different people to make it look like these wild phenomena are happening. I could go into the semantics of stage hypnosis, but I don't want to ruin the magic for anybody, so I won't. But no, tell us about the wonderful work that you do instead. The hypnotherapy, you can use hypnosis from a psychotherapy point of view and it then sticks long term. So whereas on stage, something will be a phenomenon for 20 minutes, you know, then it will go away. We don't 
use the same phenomenon that because obviously if we want someone to be feeling better from anxiety you don't want it just to last 20 minutes <laughs> you want yeah. it to last for the rest of their life so the way we do that is use the psychotherapy as well as the hypnotherapy together and that as you're using the psychotherapy model with the hypnotherapy model together the changes are long lasting and with a kind of more profound effect if that makes sense so is it really about reprogramming the mind to make it work in a way that is more conducive to how we want to be living our lives I mean, reprogramming does sound a little bit scary, like it does sound a bit like, you know, we are computers and being microchipped, but basically the brain does literally work like a computer. Call it the Google mind, for example. So for example, if you were going to Google, if you were looking for red trainers, you would probably Google red trainers. Yes. And then what would you see? lots of red trainers images videos blogs you know stuff about red trainers so that's basically the way the brain works if we are googling for example people will come into my therapy room and say i say why do you want hypnotherapy they say i don't want to feel anxious and i say okay well what do you want and they say I've just told you not to feel anxious. And I said, no, you tell me what you don't want. What do you want? I don't want to feel anxiety. And they don't get it for ages. But what they're Googling, they've been Googling for the whole of their life is anxious and anxiety. So their Google brain is giving them anxious and anxiety. So I basically teach people to look for the solution rather than focus on the problem. Mm-hmm. And then they say, well, I've just told you, I, I don't want to feel anxiety. And I said, but what do you want to feel? And they don't know the answer. Fascinating. What's the opposite of anxiety? And they're like, it's like I've asked them some really complicated question. And then they have to really do something called a transderivational search, which is basically a fancy way of saying their brain has to kind of do a new forging its way through a new neural pathway to find the new word for what they want and then they might be like oh well do i want to feel uh peaceful or calmer and suddenly you're now googling peaceful calm And you're going to then feel and see and hear and be in that state. And is the reason that they don't know what the alternative is because they haven't experienced the alternative or they have at some point in their lives, but they can't recall it? They have at some point, but they can't recall it. Yes. And also it's habit and pattern matching. So we are basically 90% hardwired for habit, you know, Uh, our brain is always looking for the quickest way of getting somewhere, and the most effective and the most efficient way of getting somewhere and doing something. And that's why we form habits. Because if we had to constantly think about things, anally, retentively, all the time, we'd just be exhausted by 11 o'clock, you know, so of course, we've got to run on autopilot. So then the brain's mechanisms also run on autopilot, therefore, the thinking also can run on autopilot. And so when people are in the habit of feeling or thinking anxious thoughts, 
they don't know how to break the habit of that and it becomes their reality because thoughts become feelings become experiences become reality so what hypnotherapy does is it helps do a pattern interruption and just creates a little comma or a little full stop or a little turning of the page for someone to break that you know groundhog day of thought loop repetition and to be able to go ah wait a minute i can maybe think something different here or say something different here or even potentially believe something different here and as soon as that happens you're in a new territory and that's basically what you would call reprogramming it's just rethinking reskilling rebehaving so how long have you been doing this now i mean you speak with such eloquence and such passion and such you're clearly incredibly knowledgeable how long have you been doing this yeah ne- nearly 12 years now so the reason why i found therapy or hypnotherapy myself was because i was in that dark place grieving and getting divorced and not knowing who i was anymore loss of identity loss of purpose loss of myself loss of marbles and then i got into that dark space and someone said to me have you tried hypnotherapy and i'd never even considered it or really knew what it was so i started to look into it and then i couldn't find a hypnotherapist i sort of found a connection with but i did find the training school in bristol so I thought, well, I might as well just go and train. Yeah, why not? Because <laughs> I was at a, a kind of you know crossroads in my life at that point because we'd have just moved to the Cotswolds and the boys had got to school now, you know, and now I was a bit more free. And I thought, I'm not going to go back into telly anymore. I'm not going to go back into radio because I live in the middle of nowhere. There's no TV and radio around here. So I've got to do something else. So that's why... I found the Clifton practice in Bristol, and that's a solution-focused hypnotherapy and psychotherapy training school. And I trained there and, oh my God, never looked back. Did you train with the intention of becoming a hypnotherapist or did you just think, oh, it's something I'm interested in, we'll see, see where it takes me? I think I trained with the intention of just sorting my own shit out, basically. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, my head was all over the place. I was... I was just very in a very dark place, you know, and it was that or it was that or I don't really know what, you know, it it was bad. So when you're in that state of being so low and in such a kind of rock bottom place, you're not thinking about your future. You're not. You're just thinking about, can I get up tomorrow and function? Can I brush my hair? Can I take the boys to school? Can I look like I'm functioning without losing the plot? You know, you're in that state. So it was very much day to day living. You know, I was not thinking I'm going to be the best hypnotherapist on the planet. You know, there was none of that ambition and drive like I had when I was wanting to get to the beep. There was none of that. This was like, can I get up tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. You know, will I make it to tomorrow? You know, that sometimes, you know, that's how it was. So slowly but surely, as the training progressed, 
I was helping my own mind change, helping me feel stronger, helping me find myself, helping me renegotiate who I was, building this new identity for myself, this new belief system. And then, then it changed into my mission and my vision and my purpose. And after the year, I was like, this is it. <laughs> I've arrived. <laughs> And Didn't that's when I turned like 40. Your, yeah, you know, people talk about their calling, don't they? And do you feel like it was your calling? Well, I thought the BBC was my calling at 25, whatever. And then I thought being a mother was my calling at 30. And then at 40, hypnotherapy was my calling. Okay, so now I'm 50. Do I have a new calling? No. No, I don't. Same I'm calling. Yeah. <laughs> I've arrived at my calling <laughs> well it's interesting because people always feel like they have to have a calling and it's one calling per life and you're a really good example of the fact that this is clearly not the case it doesn't have to be the case you can reinvent yourself you can change the goalpost you can create a whole new life for yourself and you're the epitome of that aren't you well, I don't know. I mean, I think you are. I haven't really <laughs> talked about my life like this. Um, I have talked about my life, obviously, <laughs> but not so sequentially like I've done today. Yeah. So I might even watch this back. <laughs> and and hear like... something. You might hear something in your own like, story. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's the dream? You know, it, you've obviously achieved all these amazing wonderful things over the last 12 years that you know I feel proud on your behalf without hopefully that doesn't sound too patronizing but I, I just you. think it's wonderful what you've created in the you know in the last decade and I'm curious what you think might be on the horizon for you well funnily enough it feels like it's coming full circle because tv has not left my head it hasn't it's been there waiting patiently for me. That's how it feels. And suddenly in the last few weeks, it's been that recent where TV's just come back into the forefront of my mind again as a, a thing. So I'm not sure what's gonna happen, but I've addressed it and I've put some feelers out and I don't know what's going to happen, but I feel that my life includes television and therapy. I don't know what that's going to look like yet, but I mean, watch this space. Yeah. Maybe nothing will happen. Maybe it'll be that, like we started off earlier before the, we started recording, we said, is this a hope or is this, you know, is this a feeling or is this a hope? That was a really good question. This might be a hope that something comes of this, or it might be one of those feelings that you just need to pursue. And, and I think I answered that, is this a feeling or a hope question that you had with my answer was, dreams are possible with action. So every single dream, if you add the right action to it, it can become your reality. So I wonder whether this dream of mine to be a TV presenter and this action and this kind of mission, it's almost like the recipe 
has now come full circle yeah I don't know so if we have any tv producers listening or watching this right <laughs> now <laughs> this is your invitation to contact dipti she'd be happy to chat to you well put it this way i've been putting pictures out there oh okay yeah well you know we need a follow-up in a year's time don't we to see where <laughs> this has led but this is exciting i'm really excited for you what does success mean to you dipti that's a good question. So I know I'm successful when I can relax on demand. What does relax on demand mean? So relax on demand doesn't mean lying down on a sun lounger with a cocktail or watching TV with a glass of wine. Relax on demand means when you can create a feeling of inner peace and your whole parasympathetic nervous system moves into stillness and neutral. So you feel physically, mentally and emotionally congruent and connected and balanced and calm. That's my measure of success. And are you able to do that currently? Yeah, that's how I live. Love it. <laughs> love it, love it. What a great skill for anybody to be able to acquire, to just find that inner peace whenever they need it. I'm not saying my life is peaceful, by the way, just caveat. There's a lot of crap and stress, as we were talking about earlier. For example, when your computer breaks and you don't have an IT support system around you, or, you know, when there's, uh, you know, stuff hitting the fan and you've got to deal with stuff. And there's a lot of stress events that happen in my life but to be able to deal with stress with relaxation is the skill that I teach others therefore I had to learn it myself to be able to effectively teach that to others and that's basically my job that's what I do and so that's what I have to do in my life as well yeah well I think you're a great teacher and a great example and I'm sure everybody can learn something from you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. It's been really amazing to hear your story. What a fascinating journey you've been on. Some things have been thrown at you that you didn't want. Some things have popped up out of nowhere that you never expected. And you've sort of embraced it all, haven't you? And gone gone with it. And here you are Eventually. now. Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't always embraced it at the beginning, as I said. It's been... It's been a, you know, push me, pull you journey. But today I'm embracing it, you know, but you never know. Tomorrow I could be resisting it again. And I think that's life. We go from embracing to resistance to embracing to resistance. And I think that's normal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're human beings, aren't we? Yeah. And we're not, we're not those computers that we were talking about earlier. We are human beings and we just have to find our way to best navigate what is yeah. a messy, messy world? Exactly. Yeah. Try and find some tidiness in that mess. <laughs> yeah. well, it'd be really boring otherwise, wouldn't it? It really would. <laughs> <laughs> what would we do? There would be no need for a podcast like this because we'd all be living these wonderful, boring lives. Show home head. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's a show home. <laughs> there you go. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I know you've got a client coming in any minute. So I will leave it there and thank you again. 
Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful talking to you and thank you for doing what you do too. You're amazing. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. <laughs>